It is uh, that time of year. We tend to be a little more giving around the holidays. At least we like to think that we are a little bit more giving. Uh, the Fraser Institute is a think tank that tracks the amount that people donate to charity. And it's not perfect. It does this by looking at income tax returns and the amount people claim. And I know that people do give money in other areas as well, whether it's some money to the Salvation Army kettle on the street, whether it's to somebody you might come across on the street. And obviously that amount can't be tracked in this, but this does give us a pretty good picture of how much we give and how much the giving varies from province to province to territory. And even more so, how much we give compared to people in the United States. Some interesting findings. And one of the main takeaways from this year's generosity index is that the amount we give is down. And it has been going down since 2006, and that's when the Institute started keeping track of these numbers. So to learn a little bit more about the index this year and about where BC stands compared to the rest of the country, I'm joined by Jason Clements. He's an executive director with the Fraser Institute. And Jason, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, This is a yearly report, a study that the Institute does, uh, Generosity in Canada and the United States. Uh, The 2018 Generosity Index uh, finds a bit of a dip when it comes to Canadians and donating to registered charities. So what have you found? Uh, So it's a couple things, um, all of which are a bit unfortunate given uh, the time of the year. Uh, So the trend that we've been observing where both less Canadians are donating as a percentage of all Canadians and that the amount they're donating is declining is continuing. Uh, So in other words, 2018 is continuing a a fairly long trend now where less and less Canadians are donating and those that are donating are less, are donating less of their income. So um, again, two uh, fairly concerning trends that are continuing in 2018, both for charities themselves, obviously, this means less money available for all the uh, incredible things that charities do across the country. Um, but it also affects the nature of the country. And that, as I say, uh, the fact that less Canadians are giving and they're giving less um, uh, is important to understand, particularly this this time of the year. And does it look at uh, reasons why in that uh, in BC, uh, in Metro Vancouver, especially people might automatically think, well, you know, property taxes are going up, ICBC rates are going up, it's extremely expensive to live here, and maybe that's why they're cutting back or, or not able to give to charities as much? Right. So there's a number, sorry, this particular study doesn't look at the causes of the decline, but we we have done uh, research in the past and and indeed others have have done uh, important research as well. So there's a couple things to consider. So one is uh, taxes and tax rates. There's clearly a relationship between the amount of disposable income that families have and the amount that they're able to give. And so, you know, when you have uh, tax increases at the federal level, uh, and many provinces, including British Columbia, increasing taxes. Um, it's not surprising then that that's going to affect charitable giving. So uh, taxes would be one explanation. Uh, another key explanation, particularly when you compare Canadian uh, charitable giving with the United States, is our level of religious um, activity. So Canada clearly has a lower level of religious affiliation or religious activity relative to the United States, and and not surprising, there is a pretty clear relationship between the level of uh, religious activity or commitment to religiosity 
uh, and giving. So those two, uh, I think, are key considerations when we look at both the level of giving in Canada now as well as what's happening over time. Uh, does that surprise you at all in that uh, it makes sense that, that uh, there there is more of a, a push or a, a religious presence, I suppose, in the States and a higher population? Uh, but is, is it that people who are religious are, are give more or that the, the registered charities tend to be more religion-based charities? Uh, it's both. So uh, even if you pull out uh, religious-based giving, uh, the United States still has a higher level of charitable giving than Canada, although the gap is uh, obviously is smaller than it is right now, and it is a substantial gap. Um, but people who are religiously active or uh, on survey data indicate that they are committed to a particular religion have a much higher propensity to give, and they give more of their income than those that don't indicate that they're religiously active. So um, as you've said, it, it's both an effect when it comes to giving to religious institutions, but it's also a broader effect of uh, people who are religiously active or self-identify as religiously active have a higher propensity to give, um, as well as giving a higher level of their income. And do we know then, I know it breaks it down province by province and territory, was it Manitoba or who, who are the biggest givers in Canada? Right. So in terms of the rankings, we look at two measures. So one is the percentage of tax filers who give um, and then the amount that they give. And and consistently now, I mean, it's almost 20 years that we've been doing this, uh, Manitoba comes out on top uh, in terms of uh, both the uh, percentage of people who are giving and the percentage of their income that they're giving. So that, that's a fairly consistent uh, result that we see. Uh, and then on the other end, it, it's also fairly consistent that Quebec tends to be at the bottom in terms of uh, percentage of people in Quebec who donate and the share of income that they donate. Hmm. Where does BC fall in the uh, in the list? Uh, so British Columbia uh, right now, so at, at 19.4% of tax filers, so roughly one in five uh, British Columbian tax filers, uh, donate to charities, which would place us six out of the ten provinces. And then we're slightly higher uh, when it comes to the share of our income that we donate um, at roughly 0.65% of income, um, which again actually puts us, interestingly enough, it puts us above uh, Alberta uh, in terms of the share of income given, but not the value of the average donation. And what do you think, what do we take as a takeaway from this? And that you've gone through some of the, the reasons as to why we might see these numbers. But still, when you look at it, that it's gone down more than 32% when we talk about this going back, looking since 2000, or sorry, uh, yeah, 2006. Uh, what do you take away from this? Well, I, I think there's really two two things that I think are important for Canadians to understand. So one is and I think this is quite natural, that we like to think of ourselves as a very generous country. Um, and certainly we are, I think, in many ways, a very generous population. Um, but when it when it actually comes to private charities and the degree to which we are, in fact, generous, um, we are quite a bit less generous than our friends to the South. And, and I think that's an uncomfortable statistic for many Canadians. Um, but I think it's important to realize that on average, Americans give um, more Americans as a share of the total give, and they give much more of their income to charities. I think the second thing then, which is related to that, is that there is a trade-off between what we ask the government to do and therefore what tax burden we accept at, for that trade-off, 
um, and then the level of charitable giving that we're going to that we're going to observe. And so I think there's a real question then about do we think it's better for private citizens to be involved in private organizations and provide their resources to those organizations to solve some of the problems that we observe locally, regionally, or provincially? Or is it better for the government to do that? And I, and I think too often the question or the debate in Canadian policy circles is either the government does it or no one does it because the private sector probably won't do that. And we ignore the third sector of our economy, which is critically important, uh, the nonprofit sector or the charitable sector, uh, which on a day-in and day-out basis is providing uh, services to some of, the, uh, some of our society's most neediest, as well as services like education and health um, to people across the country. So I, I think understanding the state of generosity and then this trade-off between the government doing it or the for-profit sector doing it or the non-profit sector doing it is an important car, poor, excuse me it's an important part of the conversation when we think about policy um, particularly policies that are going to affect some of the more needier um, folks in our in our society all right. Well, interesting uh, findings uh, in uh, this year's uh, uh, study, the uh, 2018 Generosity Index. Uh, Jason, thank you so much. Uh, great chatting with you about this. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you. As you hopefully have heard, the electoral reform referendum results were announced, happened on Thursday, which was a very busy news day with the storms and such. But the vote was to keep first past the post. So there will be no change in how voters in B.C. elect their officials. Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Vancouver Province columnist and show host right here, Mike Smith. Mike Smith, good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Jill. Now that we've had time to really look at the results and, and digest them and look at riding to riding, is there anything that sticks out to you that uh, is a surprise or is, is not what we expected as far as the different ridings and how the ridings voted? Yeah, a couple of things uh, jump out at me, Jill. One is that the result, I guess, overall is not a huge surprise. Uh, a lot of people thought that maybe the no side would win this, but the margin of victory for the no side, I think, was the big surprise that the polls, the opinion polls leading up to this referendum showed a, a very close race, neck and neck. But when the votes were counted, the no side got 61% of the vote compared to just, just a little under 39% to, uh, for pro rep. So that was a, <laughs> that's a big win for the no side. Um, and the pro rep side are left pretty battered after this. And if you do the math on it and drill down even more, you take a look at the turnout, which was uh, pretty low, just over 40%. It just it means that only 16% of all eligible voters in British Columbia actually voted for proportional representation. 16%. That's mm. pretty bad. And then you take a look at the ridings where this was delivered. Essentially, only the city of Vancouver and, and the city of Victoria and its suburbs voted in favor of proportional representation, or, or voted in favor, yeah, and the rest of the province was pretty much uh, keeping first past the post. So it means for a lot of NDP MLAs who campaigned in favor of pro-rep, the vast majority of them failed to deliver their own ridings. So if you take a look at the 40 seats that the NDP control, only 13 of them uh, went with pro-rep. with uh, pro rep. So that's a pretty bad Result, and I think a lot of it can be pinned on just the poor, the poor uh, 
the poor effort to, to explain the thing to, to voters. I mean, you, you remember that Melanie Mark clip? Oh, yes. I mean, this, this was the doozy, right? This was Melanie Mark, NDP cabinet minister, who was asked uh, to explain the proportional representation voting systems, and she couldn't do it on camera. I think that may be stuck in the minds of a lot of people. So, yeah, a big win for the no side. And doesn't she even have a political science degree? Yeah, it was one of the funny things about yeah. that clip. Um, she said, I've got a political science degree, but I'm no expert in explain- <laughs> explaining this. And I think a lot of people were left scratching their heads saying, well, gee, if you're, a, if you're an NDP cabinet minister out here telling me to vote for this and you got a poli-sci degree and even you can't explain it to me, uh, why should I vote for it? So I think there were a lot of people when they actually sat down to mark their ballots on this thing. And I think, I think a significant number of people who maybe even leaned towards supporting proportional representation or, or were open to supporting it, I think some of them looked at it and said, you know what, I, I just don't trust what I'm being told here. Uh, you know, uh, even the people behind... Uh, the Yes campaign were having trouble explaining it. Um, if you take a look at the Yes campaign, you, you saw a lot of, I guess, kind of the usual suspects you would see with the NDP Green Coalition. You saw a lot of labor activists, environmentalists, um, social justice advocates, uh, you know, the usual kind of NDP Green Coalition supporting this. So it, it seemed very partisan. On the other side of it, though, on the Yes side, uh, you had Bill Thielman, who was running the thing, who is an NDP partisan. He's an NDP organizer in the past. He's a, he's a union organizer. And yet he was the head of the yes side. And he was able to bring along people like former NDP Premier Ujjal Dessange, uh, Glenn Clark, former, another former NDP Premier. Uh, you know, so you had some very high-profile NDP partisans who were on the, uh, op- on the other side of it. Yet if you looked at the yes side, there were no equivalent kind of liberals over there uh, on their side of it. So I think, uh, you know, the, the partisan breakdown of it, of, of it, I think, was troubling for people, too. <clears throat> uh, do you think, too, there was this inflated sense of uh, that, that people really wanted change or this inflated idea that people are upset with first past the post to something maybe that doesn't that that discontent really doesn't exist? Yeah, I think for sure. I mean, this was uh, a solution. I, th- I think Keith Baldry maybe put it best. He said this was a solution looking for a problem. Th- there was no problem. I-, I think a lot of people were looking at the current system we have and wondering, uh, why are we doing this? We've already done this twice, and both times we've said no to proportional representation. Now we're going around the mulberry bush again. But there doesn't appear to be any apparent reason for doing it. Um, we-, we haven't had any badly distorted or weird uh, election results, and and yet we're we're doing... we're camp we're asking this question again now if you go back to the the two earlier referendums that we had go back to 2005 where proportional representation actually got 57 percent of the vote uh almost one now back then it was gordon the gordon campbell government required a 60 percent threshold to pass because they wanted a clear majority so it, it finished just a shade under that. 57% is a big result. And we, so we almost got pro-rep back in 2005. But consider the elections that came before that. Um, in 1996, you had an election result where the, N- the liberals got the most votes, but the NDP formed gov- a majority government under Glenn Clark. And then in 2001, you had the historic wipeout of the NDP. They elected only two MLAs. Uh, in a la- liberal landslide, it was like 78 to 2 or something were the standings in the House. And the liberals were very mean to the NDP back then. They, they refused to give them 
uh, official party status. They stuck Joy McPhail and Jenny Kwan in like crummy little offices in the basement. And I, th- I think that was top of mind for a lot of people. They were looking at the, the electoral system we had and the distorted results we got. And they said, boy, this system is broken. Let's try and fix it. And they got a 57% yes vote, still not enough for it to pass. This time around, do you think about, was there anything similar in the minds of voters saying to themselves, this system is broken, so we've got to do something radical to fix it? I don't think so. There, there wasn't a, re- a big problem out there, and maybe that's the reason why people didn't want, another big reason why they didn't want to vote for change. Yeah. Uh, do you think it will have any impact on the upcoming vote in Nanaimo? Or you know does what? it give us any li- insight? The Liberals are certainly taking some uh, encouragement from this result because their side won. Um, they're taking a look at a lot of ridings all around uh, B.C. that voted in favor of keeping the first-past-the-post system like they campaigned on. There were only 16 ridings in B.C. that voted in favor of proportional representation. One of the ridings that voted to keep the current first-past-the-post system was uh, Nanaimo. So they're taking a, the, the Liberals are, are taking some encouragement from that, saying, like, boy, we've got this critical by-election coming up here early in the new year. Uh, here is here is an issue where the NDP campaigned hard to convince voters to go one way, and the voters in that riding, like many, like the vast majority of other ridings around BC, uh, didn't side with the NDP on it. So I think the Liberals are saying maybe that's showing there's an opportunity here that the NDP messaging on this key issue is certainly not getting traction. Maybe it's an opportunity for us. And remember, Jill, if the if the Liberals can somehow, some way, win that by-election in Nanaimo early in the new year, that changes everything. It plunges the, the legislature into a deadlock tie and probably brings the government down and forces a snap election. So, you know, that is a traditionally safe NDP seat. They should win it, but you never know. The Liberals are encouraged by this uh, referendum result for sure. Yeah, what if they won? The, the NDP has uh, held it, what, in, in 11 of the last 12 elections? It's a, it's a yeah. pretty big, it, it would be a huge upset, you're right, if it did go the other way. It would, but you know what? This is BC and, and strange stuff happens and upsets happen. And the Liberals have won that seat in the past. It's, it hasn't been a total landslide for the NDP. It's been a pretty solid <clears throat> lock for them. It's a real working class town. Um, there, there's a lot of NDP support there, but the demographics have been changing. The Liberals have got a pretty, a, a very strong candidate up there. So do the NDP, though. So it, it looks, it certainly looks like the NDP's seat to lose. But you never know. This is BC. Crazy <laughs> stuff happens, right? Exactly. And <laughs> yeah. we we know the the BC Conservative Party is also going to run a candidate. Do you think that's going to be any factor at all? Uh, it might be. It might be that the, the Conservatives can, even if the Conservatives just get scoop up five or six percent of the vote. Um, we, we've seen how uh, they have split the vote even a little bit in some ridings and, and uh, denied the Liberals a seat. If the Liberals um, had their way, they'd prefer to see a Conservative candidate sitting on the, on the sidelines here and not running. But on the other side, you've got a Green Party candidate. They've got a pretty good Green Party candidate running up there as well. Maybe they steal a few votes from the NDP, although the Greens have been shown to take some votes from the Liberals too. So right now, I think if you're, if you're going to put a bet on it, you'd have to say the NDP is the favorite there to retain that seat. But uh, the Liberals, I think, certainly got a shot. You're right. Uh, like you said, it's BC politics. Anything yeah. could happen. That's right. <laughs> All That's right. right. Mike McDonald, Mike who's a, a very well-known liberal strategist, put it at about 20%. He figured they got about a 20% chance to win that riding, which I think is a, a, not a bad accurate, not a bad uh, assessment, I would say. All right. On that note, uh, Mike, thank you so much. So great to chat with you this morning. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Jill. Same to you.
Well, a new study that comes out of UBC and Western takes a look at primary health care and how it can be improved, particularly for certain groups of people who might not have had good experiences in the past. And joining me to talk a bit more about the study is lead researcher Annette Brown, also a professor of nursing at UBC. Annette, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, this was a study that looked at uh, involved two clinics, uh, primary care clinics, two in BC, two in Ontario. So, what specifically were you were you looking at as far as uh, the primary health care offered there? Sure, our research study was designed to study the impact of equity oriented approaches to care on patients, on staff working at the primary health care clinics, and on the clinics as a whole. And in order to understand what we mean by equity-oriented approaches to care, it's helpful to understand the concepts of health equity and inequity. Health equity is a social justice goal that's focused on pursuing the highest possible standard of health and health care for all people, paying special attention to those who experience the greatest risk for poor health. Many people in our communities face barriers to accessing good health care, including poverty, various forms of discrimination, and the ongoing effects of trauma and violence on people's lives. And this can lead to health inequities, which the World Health Organization defines as avoidable and unfair differences in people's health and the factors that contribute to good health. And this is important because social inequities, such as major differences in income and lack of affordable housing, continue to rise in Canada. So equity-oriented care means paying attention to particular uh, people, particular those at risk for poor health. And um, that typically means people who are most affected by the negative impacts of our current social conditions. Now, you interviewed many, many people who went into these clinics, and these were clinics that serve a large, a large population of low-income groups. What did you find when you talked to people who had received care at these clinics? Yeah, more specifically, um, healthcare pro- as healthcare providers, we need to make everyone feel safe and comfortable when they walk into a clinic. And this is even more critical when patients are struggling with issues of poverty, chronic health challenges, chronic pain issues, mental health issues, or if they've experienced racism and other forms of prejudice, which may have stopped them from accessing healthcare in the past. And evidence shows that high quality care means helping people to feel respected, listened to, getting help with the things that are most important in their lives. And these strategies were the focus of our study. The patients that we spoke to included 567 people attending the four clinics, two in BC and two in Ontario. And uh, we were able to learn uh, a great deal from them about what's important in terms of how they want to be treated when they go for health care and also the ways in which their health outcomes can be improved when people are treated with a greater degree of respect and care. Did you find that people were treated differently? Because I think we'd like to think that everyone's treated the same, but did you find a discrepancy there? Yeah, patients in our study and in other research we've conducted have said that 
inadvertently, when people go for health care and they may be living with chronic pain issues or major mental health challenges or substance use issues, that they often feel judged by health care providers or by people working at health and social service clinics. And I think this occurs unintentionally. People aren't necessarily wanting to judge people negatively, but uh, because of the stigma associated with mental health or substance use or chronic pain, uh, people can feel uh, intimidated and or judged negatively when they go for health care. And these are things that our study wanted to really try to counteract through equity-oriented strategies. And can it be something as simple as as the greeting or how somebody is received the moment they walk in? Yes, very much so. Um, We have found in our study that uh, providing more equity-oriented health care actually can predict improvements in important patient health outcomes across time. And this occurs despite the negative toll of poverty, chronic pain, racism, and discrimination on people's health. So when care is more equity-oriented, patients feel more comfortable and confident about the care that they're receiving, which leads to more confidence in their own ability to prevent and manage health problems. And we found that when these things happened, patients actually reported less chronic pain, fewer depression and trauma symptoms, and an improved quality of life, with the strongest impact seen on people's quality of life and their mental health. Secondly, we found that experiencing discrimination, violence, and economic hardships still negatively affects people's health, of course, but equity-oriented health care can help offset those negative impacts. So we say that primary care clinics absolutely can enhance the delivery of equity-oriented care by adopting low-cost, high-impact strategies such as those used in the EQUIP research program. And so how do you make that actually happen then? If, if one of the issues is this is happening and, and people providing the health care or that front line might not even be aware of it. Sure. Um, Equity-oriented care really is a, a win-win arrangement. Not only are patient outcomes improved, but it leads to greater satisfaction and less burnout for healthcare providers, which can ultimately contribute to a more effective healthcare system. And so perhaps I can provide some examples of uh, equity-oriented approaches to care. Um, as I've mentioned, equity-oriented healthcare does not have to be expensive or time-consuming. Many of the strategies implemented at the clinics that we worked with were about helping patients feel safe and comfortable, putting them first, asking about who's important in their life, avoiding judgmental language and nonverbal behaviors, and not limiting visits to one problem only, and as you mentioned, greeting people warmly and promptly when they call or come to the clinic for help. All right, uh, and Annette, we're out of time, but it's a very interesting study, and people can see it on the UBC website and read more about it. I appreciate you coming on the show this morning and talking about it. Thank you so much. You're very welcome, and thank you for inviting me.